Hello ladies and gentlemen, and welcome back to the fifth episode of KSC Talks. I am Anna Wasyuk, research fellow at KSC Institute and your host for today's conversation. I am pleased to present this episode of our podcast, which will focus on a possible confiscation of Russian sovereign assets at a very opportune time. For a long time, just seven countries maintained that transferring Russia's assets to Ukraine would contradict international law. However, recent reports suggest some change in perspective. Today, I am pleased to introduce our special guest, Dr. Philip Zalikov, a senior fellow at Stanford University's Hoover Institution. Previously, Dr. Zalikov served as an executive director of the 9-11 Commission and counselor of the U.S. State Department. He also held academic positions with Harvard University and the University of Virginia. Dr. Zalikov was one of the first to publicly raise the issue of transferring Russia's foreign reserves to Ukraine back in March 2022 and published an initial paper on the matter. Ever since, his expertise and government experience have helped to shape a deeper understanding of this topic. In today's conversation, we will discuss countermeasures as a legal ground for transferring Russia's assets to Ukraine and limits of applicability of sovereign immunities. We will also explore the recent shift in some countries' views on such a course of action, as well as private companies' concerns regarding the potential expropriation of their assets by Russia. Finally, we will comment on the feasibility of the proposal to tax Euroclear transactions. Now, without further ado, let's begin. Dr. Zelikov, welcome to KSC Talks. Glad to be with you. So, you published a first paper on the issue of transfer of Russian foreign reserves to Ukraine back in March 2022. And I believe you were the, one of the first to raise this issue publicly. What made you think in this direction in the first place? Well, it was clear that the Russian assets were not going to be going back to Russia anytime in the foreseeable future. At least that was clear to me. And it was also clear that Ukraine under international law would be entitled to compensation from Russia. So the logic of the position seemed very clear that Russia had made a colossal historical mistake in creating a situation that has never happened before in history, where an aggressor nation left huge sums of its own money in the bank accounts of countries wounded by its aggression. It seemed logical to me that sooner or later, the offended countries would take advantage of this unique historical situation and apply this money to help Ukraine. It's, uh, it's taken now uh, the better part of two years for them to get to that point that seemed rather logical to me at the time. By the time I started making this argument right after the Russian invasion, I actually thought I would be pushing on an open door. I thought that, you know, I'm making this argument, but everyone will see this in about five minutes later, <laughs> that that I'm only the first of what will be many voices. So the the difficulty of getting this done has been the most surprising thing uh, about the whole episode. And it's it's still difficult right now. But it, it's and Ukraine's situation is has they've now let the situation delay for so long that the 
Ukraine's condition is becoming more desperate. But at last, I think there is some movement. And why do you think it has been so difficult to argue for this? I'll just take off. Well, let me take off a few main reasons. First is the shock and novelty of doing such a big thing. In general, people tend to do the things they are used to doing. Uh, no one had done anything like this in recent years. So this current generation of officials has no direct experience with doing something like this. I had some experience with this, but I'm an, I'm an older fellow and I have more experience than some of the people working in the governments now. So the first point you just have to stress is, is the sheer novelty of the idea to many people now working in governments um, and the scale of it. Second, a number of well-meaning but mistaken international law professors began opining that you can't do this under international law because of really quite mistaken views of international law or views in international law that are held in academia, but not so much by people who actually practice international law, that basically there's a view in a, in a spectrum of academia that's very progressive that says that one state shouldn't be able to do things to another state without a state's permission. And you can see where a progressive international law professor might say, you can't do something to another state without its permission. But then they apply that nice principle to say, you can't do anything to Russia unless Russia gives you permission. Well, and of course, the easy answer is, is that under international law, Russia had not asked Ukraine's permission before it invaded. And therefore, perhaps Russia's right to ask other people to respect its rights goes away which actually it, you would think, well, that's a sensible position. And it turns out international law is sensible on this point. But I will just say right at the start, a number of international law people, people who seemed like experts, said things saying, oh, you can't do this. And so people looked at this for a few seconds. They heard, oh, you, they heard it was hard and then they were discouraged and it seemed novel to them anyway. Then the third thing that came up right away was the bankers reacted with horror. Their bankers said, what? You, you politicians want to mess with deposits of a bank, of, a Russian, of the Russian Central Bank? We like the Russian Central Bank. They're good customers. Uh, Nabulina is a wonderful person. Seriously, we heard things like this. So the bankers, of course in general, don't like politicians to do anything that disturbs their world of respecting bank deposits, even the bank deposits of outlaws. But it turns out that under the law, the bank deposits of outlaws are not entitled to respect. So it took some time for, for me and for others to begin making the arguments, especially under international law, but more and more colleagues and, and renowned international lawyers have joined their voices to mine. And I think as governments looked at this carefully, they realized they could act. One of the problems that slowed down the U.S. and British governments for a while 
was they weren't sure that they had the standing to act under international law. There's no question Ukraine has the standing to act. That is, Ukraine can take countermeasures because Russia has violated legal obligations. The worry of some government lawyers was that their governments did not have the standing to take countermeasures against Russia. There are a couple of theories under international law about how to solve this problem. One of those theories my government doesn't accept, but one of those theories my government realized it does accept and it does apply because my government and all the Western European governments have actually been injured by Russia's aggression and that gives them the standing to take countermeasures. It took them more than a year to work through this argument. There are a few other cautions that people don't talk about out loud. In some of the European countries, they were anxious that if they did anything to the Russian assets beyond freezing it, the Russians would retaliate against private companies headquartered in their countries based in Russia. So Russia Russia has taken all these companies and, the, and investors hostage. And it has killed a couple of these hostages, liquidated investments, liquidated companies to show that it could take the rest and to scare some of these countries. And privately, they were a little scared the Russians would destroy their companies and seize all their private assets. That's quite unlawful, by the way, because these are private companies, but the Russians don't care about that. So I think those countries have realized that the value of their assets is going down every day and they have to just go ahead and act. And then their their companies will become, they they then can make claims of their own against Russia's unlawful behavior. Yes, and I think that everyone who was looking into this issue at some point would look at articles on states' responsibility, and that was something that was stopping many legal scholars or officials to accept the idea on third-party countermeasures. And what I find fascinating is that in draft articles on states' responsibility, International Law Commission makes the conclusion that states' practice on third-party countermeasures is controversial and embryonic. But it states so after citing six instances of third-party countermeasures. They cited the Falkland Island uh, situation and collective measures against Argentina. This There is a reference to Yugoslavia collective measures, collective measures against Iraq for Kuwait invasion. And yet the uh, state practice is similarly not enough to find that there is a right to third-party countermeasures. And Articles on State's Responsibility, the text that we have now, was produced in 2001, more than 20 years ago. And uh, there are scholars like Martin Davidovich who argue that many of the sanctions that we have seen in recent years, including those against Russia, are in fact third-party countermeasures. Yes. And so... I've been part of a group of very prominent international lawyers that has written a formal memorandum of law on this that agrees with the Davidovich position that you just cited very knowledgeably, I will say. And I think your argument is exactly right. But, but my government, the United States government, the British government, the Canadian government, I think the French government, have not yet formally accepted this position for reasons that have nothing to do with Ukraine. This was their position 20 years ago. 
it's part of their theology to discourage third party party countermeasures because they were worried about a slippery slope situation. That's just been the formal legal position of those governments for many years. However, those governments do agree that they are entitled to take countermeasures if they have been specially affected by Russia's aggression. They have they are now concluding my government and the British government have concluded that they are entitled to take specially affected standing. I think the British government may even still be open to third party standing as well. But for sure, my government now agrees that we have specially affected standing to take the countermeasures for various reasons. Our view under international law is you can justify it either way. But if my government only accepts one of those justifications, the specially affected justification, fine. Either way, you get to the same goal. You get to the same place, which is that uh, all of these governments have the standing to take countermeasures against Russia for its outlaw behavior. And those countermeasures can include freezing the assets, which actually can only be justified as a countermeasure, by the way, and then uh, transferring the assets uh, to the victims of Russia's aggression. It may help uh, some of your listeners to understand the difference between sanctions and countermeasures. A sanction does not violate a legal obligation that I owe to you. A sanction says, I'm not going to do business with you. I'm not going to have diplomatic relations with you. Well, that doesn't violate international law. It's my right not to do business with you. But if I seize your property, ordinarily, that would be a violation of international law. So seizing property is something that can only be, if I seize your property, you could say you have violated international law, and now you must compensate me for seizing my property. However, in this case, Russia cannot ask for compensation because of its own outlaw behavior. In other words, our violation of our obligations to Russia is justified as a countermeasure for Russia's earlier prior violation of international law in the most extreme possible ways. That is the international law of state countermeasures. But you see how the fundamental difference from sanctions is that all countermeasures always violate an obligation owed to another state. So in this case, that violation is simply justified because of Russia's own behavior. Yes, it's very interesting that you raised this. You, As you're well aware, sanctions are not per se a term of public international law. It is rhetoricians. And these are unfriendly actions, which are, but, but, but which are still in compliance with international law. And as I said, and I think it's very important to understand that many of the things that has been, that have been done in recent years towards Russia or other pariah states uh, has been countermeasures already, has been third party countermeasures by specially affected states. Yes, it's interesting. Some governments make the claim that freezing Russian assets is is actually just a sanction. Our view actually is that freezing Russian assets can only be justified as a countermeasure because freezing Russian assets and keeping Russia from accessing it is 
basically is a seizure of Russian property. And it would be under, if Russia had not committed an act of aggression, that seizure of their property would be unlawful. So the only thing that makes it lawful is, is, is that it's a countermeasure. But for various reasons, the governments that did this in early 2022 preferred to call that a sanction because they uh, they were afraid to openly accept the doctrine of countermeasures at that stage. But they're getting there now. Yes. And interestingly, that the way they are willing to approach countermeasures now is, as you said, most effective states countermeasures. Because I think initially when the this issue was brought up and for instance, when I researched it, the argument which I found like the most convincing was ergonomic obligations and preemptory norms of international law. So it is because for listeners who are not lawyers, because Russia committed such a gross violation of international law, which is an act of aggression, which is prohibited under UN Charter. And uh, prohibition of aggression is believed to be a cornerstone of UN Charter. And so this is kind of violation, which is a violation of the whole international system as such. And every state, in theory, has legal interest in uh, bringing claims or actions against Russia to make Russia lie, responsible for its violation. This is how it was supposed to work initially. This is what many scholars, I think, were thinking about. For instance, and I was researching this issue. I found this argument very convincing. But now, uh, as we can see from the recent publications, as you've mentioned, that the governments who are willing to walk the path of uh, confiscating Russian assets are taking the position that they embrace countermeasures, but on other grounds, not the uh, not the general violation of public international law and obligations owned to the community, international community as a whole. Yes, that's right. And mm-hmm. uh, our, uh, I think my view is uh, however you get there, it's great. Yes, I agree. Either way, and and you can make the specially affected argument, but I we think the other argument is legitimate as well, for various reasons. Some governments don't agree with the other argument, but they they're all coming around to finding standing one way or another. So and and we're and and it's moving forward. There's also maybe more theoretical argument, but if you could comment on it, is collective non-military self-defense. So from the theoretical point of view, purely doctrinal, it might be even easier to argue than countermeasures because you don't have to stretch the concept of outside its like accepted range. But you can, you need only argue that larger includes smaller, includes lesser. So that uh, right to self-defense, which is inherent, right? Mm -hmm. Right. And the problem for my government and many other governments is they don't want to invoke a right of self-defense for, to explain their actions in Ukraine, because that seems to imply that they're already at war with Russia, that they have been attacked by Russia. Most To most ordinary people, if someone says, if one, someone claims the right of self-defense, you can only claim that if you've been attacked. If we say that Russia has attacked us, a lot of people may think that's almost the same thing as saying we're now at war with Russia. Politically, None of the governments supporting Ukraine want to say that. So therefore, they're they're reluctant to rely on that particular legal argument. 
Yes, so separate from the issue of standing, all these scholars and uh, governmental officials who oppose the idea of transferring Russian funds traditionally rely on the doctrine of sovereign immunity. And I find their position to be a myth of omnipresence of sovereign immunity. Yes, can you comment on that? International law professors who should know better have frequently said that Russia enjoys something called sovereign immunity. This is a complete fundamental misunderstanding of the doctrine of sovereign immunity. Sovereign immunity has nothing to do with the rights of one sovereign against another sovereign. Sovereign immunity is a doctrine that arose entirely, entirely in the context of limiting the intervention of national courts. What was happening is that national courts were entertaining lawsuits against foreign states. So the doctrine of sovereign immunity is a doctrine of jurisdiction of courts. It says courts, you can't interfere with the relations of sovereigns to another sovereign because this is a matter between sovereigns. And therefore, you courts have to respect sovereign immunity. It's to keep courts from usurping the rights of states and the responsibility of states to conduct foreign relations. In international law, the fundamental responsibility to conduct foreign relations lies with states. So sovereign immunity says, it's kind of a line that says, courts cannot cross this line because then this they cross a line in which they invade the responsibility of states. But one state, if, if, I, if my state wants to take an action against another state, that state can't say, I'm immune from your action. There is no immunity between sovereigns. What there is instead is responsibility. If I take an action against another state that is believed to be unlawful, that state can then complain that I am now responsible for this unlawful behavior, and there are consequences, which may be compensation or other things, or countermeasures but it's responsibility. So, and as we were explaining earlier, in this case, we're taking actions against Russia that would ordinarily be unlawful, but Russia's claim of state responsibility on our part is precluded, it's stopped, because of Russia's own prior unlawful behavior. That's what makes the countermeasure lawful. But you see that all of none of this has anything to do with the doctrine of sovereign immunity. Ordinarily, one sovereign respects the property of another sovereign. But it's not because that property is immune somehow in some magical way. They respect the property of another sovereign because if you don't respect it, you will be held responsible for the consequences of your disrespect. Yes, I think, you know, trying to understand where these people are coming from, why they are arguing this position, I think there are two beliefs that drive them. First, I think people just find it difficult to comprehend that the property can be taken lawfully outside of judicial procedure. And second, if 
it is done so and sovereign immunity does not apply, it is again difficult to comprehend that there are no set of rules or doctrine which is applicable in this case. But what I think is in fact applicable is principle of sovereign equality of states here of which sovereign immunity is just one of the emanations. But in general, I believe it's sovereign equality, which uh, also entails that rights have right to self-help, self-enforcement. This is like the main uh, instrument for enforcing international law in horizontal, decentralized system of equal actors, which are states. In international international law, people are accustomed to thinking that international law must somehow be like their domestic law, but it's not. So in international law, states do take have responsibility for their actions. It is true that if if one state has done an internationally wrongful act against another state, then you there you can take that to a court if you're a member of the United Nations. That court is the International Court of Justice. Russia can't come to the International Court of Justice to complain because Russia is already in violation of the provisional order of the International Court of Justice to stop its aggression against Ukraine. And Russia has already effectively abandoned the use of the International Court of Justice, even though they're part of it because they're membership in the United Nations. But so there, there actually is uh, an international court of justice that does adjudicate arguments about state responsibility, but this is not a matter of sovereign immunity. And even if Russia would want to go to ICJ, you know that uh, International Court of Justice adjudicates cases only if there is a direct provision in legal instrument in binding treaty that parties agree to submit this particular dispute on these issues to the International Court of Justice. And when Iran brought case against the United States of uh, U.S. treatment of its assets, they also, Iran also claimed sovereign immunity as one of the issues, but the ICJ found that according to the treaty which gave jurisdiction in the case, which was Friendship and Navigation Treaty, the court had no jurisdiction to consider this particular issue because the treaty does not deal with issues of sovereign immunity at all. But in any event, Russia already stated, I think it was Russia's representative to United Nations who commented on the provisional order in that genocide case brought by Ukraine. So he stated already that Russia is not going to comply because it is politically motivated decision by a pocket court of the Western nations or something like that, which is not surprising to hear from Russia's uh, UN permanent representative. Yes, they, they got out of, a, I think, something like 17 or 18 judges on the International Court of Justice from, from all over the world. Russia got exactly two votes in that case. One was the Russian judge. And the other was the Chinese judge. Coming back to the discussions that have been part of uh, of the general picture uh, on this issue, so there, I guess, for six months already, there have been discussion about EU trying to gain access to these funds in some way. Initially, I think it was proposed to utilize proceeds of uh, which these funds generated themselves, which were held by Euroclear. And I think now the position is to tax Euroclear windfall profits. What do you think about this approach? Will it lead anywhere? And why uh, EU is exploring this? Um, this approach originated 
months ago in the spring of 2023 as a way of getting some money without having to take up the issue of countermeasures. It turns out that under the particular laws of Belgium, that once Russian assets had matured and turned into cash, when Euroclear then reinvested the cash as a custodian of the funds without Russian control or direction, the interest from that reinvestment of the funds is regarded under Belgian law as being Euroclear's property, not Russia's property. This result seems odd to lawyers in many other countries, including mine, but I'm just telling you that's that's the Belgian legal argument. Therefore, since the reinvestment of these profits can be regarded as Euroclear's money, the Belgian government can tax Euroclear and the European Union can adopt a directive providing political authority for the Belgian government to tax this money. So you can come up with a legal theory to access this particular amount of money in this particular country on a theory that does not use the international law of state countermeasures. You don't have to reach those issues and those debates. That was appealing to the Europeans seven or eight months ago. So they are pursuing that, but it's kind of a dead end. You know, you can do that in that particular place with that particular amount of money, and then that's about all you can do. In my view, I'm glad to see people trying to do whatever they can. I think it's a legally awkward thing to do, and it's politically awkward. It's legally awkward because it's confined to this particular place. It doesn't really solve the big problems. It's legally awkward because it's an expropriation of the money and through taxing it rather than a transfer into an escrow account only for the benefit of Russia's victims, which is, I think, a cleaner position under international law instead of taxing it and putting it in your public treasury and then using the funds to help Ukraine. I think it's legally cleaner to do it a different way. It's politically awkward because they're relying on the mechanism of an EU directive, which requires a unanimous vote in the European Union, which allows a veto by countries like Hungary that don't even have any Russian assets. So they're they're twisting themselves into this very unusual eccentric position because seven or eight months ago, that seemed like a way to get at a little bit of the money without having to take up these difficult international law questions. I commend the spirit, but I think at this time, that's a short-sighted way to go. And the good news is I think the G7 in general realize that that's a a short-sighted, dead-end, awkward approach, and are in parallel are moving ahead on the question of just a much more appropriate international law approach for the for the whole bulk of the Russian assets. It, it's worth emphasizing that we've had a long international law discussion about this now for a little while. And I don't I want your listeners to realize this is an, a fundamental policy issue for the whole outcome of the war. This is not some side issue to get a little bit of money that might be helpful. 
this is a this is an amount of money that can simply transform the entire outlook of the war itself. It can create a situation in which Ukraine and Europe may be able to succeed no matter where the battle line ends up. It it is a game changer, this issue. And the policy issues about how to use this money are will be extremely important and present an enormous monumental opportunity. But we've been spending this time here essentially working our way through the legal barbed wire so that we can make our way through the fence and then enter the world in which we can make a gigantic difference if we design good policies. Yes, and since you mentioned the EU directive, you know, even if we have consensus, in normal procedure where everyone agrees on what needs to be done, it takes up to two years. Normally, it's 24 months for you to adopt a, a regulation or, uh, I'm sorry, a directive. Um, so definitely it's too long and too burdensome of procedure. It, this is the, this is the hangover days. of a short, uh, of, of a desperate compromise that may, made a little bit of sense seven or eight months ago, but is, I think, a dead end. Yes. So let's talk about some not legal concerns that different actors may have about transferring Russian funds to Ukraine. As you're well aware, there are uh, people who say that Russia will retaliate economically, uh, including against the Western companies still doing business in Russia, or that China and Saudi Arabia will withdraw their reserves from a dollar and euro systems, and that this is like just a bad example that the West is willing to go to weaponize the international financial system, and it undermines the trust in the reserve currencies. What would you tell to those people? Well, several things. First of all, the political risk from this measure has already been priced into the system. Mm -hmm. um, the people who hand, who manage these foreign exchange accounts are very sophisticated. As soon as the Russian assets were frozen at the beginning of 2022, all these people realized they had this political risk and they've already been making their asset allocation decisions. So the Chinese have already been, frankly, even before this, the Chinese have been moving money to shelter it from political risk for years. And they've done about all that they can. There are reasons the, the Arabs uh, conduct their transactions in dollars and euros because it is in their interest to do it, not because they like us. There, and there are reasons why the, they, would, they don't wish to put all their money into Chinese renminbi. That is not a totally secure currency either. Um, so the first point is that the political risk has already been priced in. And you can see the data on what on on that. Second is which is crucial is that if the dollar and the euro and the sterling and yen all move together, there's no place to go if you want to do business in the world economy. In the world economy, for all foreign exchange holdings by all countries, 93 percent, 93 is held in dollar, euro, sterling, yen, and 3 percent, 3, is held in renminbi. There is a reason why it's 93, 3. 
There's a reason why nearly 90% of all foreign commercial transactions use dollars on at least one side of the transaction. So there's really, uh, there's not a good place to go. By the way, and I'll just say as a final point, if aggressors, if, if countries that are thinking about gigantic aggressions on the largest scale since the Second World War think that that puts their money at risk, good. I hope they will, I hope that that will slow them down. Do you think it will dissuade China in case it's contemplating uh, attack on Taiwan? I think it is already a factor the Chinese government is considering. Now, in that particular case, the costs run in a lot of different directions. And so there it, it structures the kind of options the Chinese may choose. I'll, that, there's more I can, I'll just leave it at that. I see. So, yes, because I would imagine Chinese would now try to build Fortress China like Russia was doing in preparation for this war. But what you're saying, as I understand it, they simply have no choice. Well, they they already are trying to build Fortress China Mm -hmm. um, and create their own trading zones, their own. uh, And they're doing that about already doing that about as much as they can. So there's nothing that a move on Russia would add to the pressure on China to do that. China's already doing all they can about that for their own reasons. And so there's no reason to slow a move on Russia in order to affect Chinese behavior. The Chinese are already moving as much as they can. Yes, and do you think there's any more economic coercion that might come from Russia after what they've done, after they, like Russia on one hand is under sanctions. On the other hand, they, Russia them, itself imposing counter sanctions and refuses to supply some of its uh, hydrocarbons to Europe and other countries. Also, Russia has been implementing all this uh, retaliatory legislation against companies from, as they call it, unfriendly countries. And U.S. is number one there. If you read the legislation, it says actions against United States and other countries who joined the United States. So is there any more that Russia can do or they probably exhausted all? uh, They've exhausted all the formal tools. They haven't yet confiscated all the companies. They've confiscated some of them and they've made life harder for others. But there's still some companies they are still holding hostage that they have not confiscated. I think they will go ahead if if you, we move on the assets. I think they will go ahead and confiscate more companies that they've been threatening. They've hold it. They've had, as you point out, they passed the decree to put a gun against their head. And I mm-hmm. think when we move on the, their assets, they'll pull the trigger and they'll they'll take more of them. And as they did with Carlsberg and Danone yogurt, and they'll give them to you know Putin's Chechen friends as a gift, which he did. Uh, so they'll do that. They're gonna. I think they will do that. I think they will mm-hmm. carry out that threat. And therefore, I believe our view should be that the companies that are damaged by this should join the list of people who have claims for compensation from Russia for more of Russia's internationally wrongful acts because all of this is on all of this behavior by Russia would be unlawful
Yes, and it might sound harsh, but I would also add that these companies should have known better. They shouldn't have stayed for in Russia for so long. I was recently working on just restatement chronology of Russian laws since uh, February 2022. So it was pretty obvious where it's all going. And if you're a reasonable business person and you have responsibility to your shareholders, you should have withdrawn as soon as possible. Take you know, the the risk immediately, you take all the damages immediately. And at the end of the day, uh, your damages will be uh, smaller than if you sit there, if you stay, com- continue working in Russia up to this date. And you're right, but it's, uh, you under, but you understand the situation. Of course. So yeah, we'll see what will happen to those companies and how they will try to protect themselves. Like even now they have all the arguments for waiting any investment arbitration tribunal, but for some reason, they are not filing these claims against Russia. When in other jurisdictions for much smaller violations, companies applied for investment arbitration and won. And here, for some reason, nobody is doing that. But see what, let's see what happens next. And I guess what I would also like you to uh, comment on just weeks ago, like maybe two weeks ago even, general position of G7 governments was that no, we are not going to these Russia's assets. It is against public international law. And the statement which was repeatedly put forth by the uh, G7 uh, after G7 meetings that Russian reserves will remain immobilized until Russia pays uh, reparation to Ukraine. And very recently, on Friday, there was a publication in Financial Times that now there's been a change of thinking on this issue, that the governments are accepting, as you said, the idea of countermeasures of uh, specifically affected states. And why do you think it happened? Why do you think the change of position, what caused, what affected this change of position? To be fair to the G7 states and to my government, which is one of them, the G7 never said, that countermeasures were wrong. They just didn't adopt them. They said, we're going to mobilize until Russia gives up its aggression. They didn't say what they would do if Russia didn't give up its aggression. So that was their position in June. I think they now, in my view, that they, you know, I think they're late, but better late than never is the American phrase. And it's, They've, they've now come to realize in the second half of 2023 that this war is not going to end soon, that Ukraine's position is very serious, and that Western taxpayers should not pay the cost of what Russia has done, that, that Russians should pay the cost before they go to their own taxpayers. So I think Western and, and U.S. taxpayers should bear a lot of the costs to support Ukraine's government and keep it afloat. But I think Russia should pay the cost of rebuilding Ukraine. And good, the good news is that uh, during the last six months, partly with the aid of arguments that have been made by people like me and others, our, my government and other governments are now persuaded that it is time to move on from freezing and move on to the rest of the countermeasures. They're, they're moving still very slowly. They're slowly beginning to move. The British government is there. Uh, the American government is about there. They have circulated a discussion paper. 
but I do think that they hope that the whole G7 be in a position to make a decision on this issue uh, by February. Because the next step will be to set up this gigantic institution and policies to receive and use the money. Yeah, that's what I wanted to ask you about. I know that you have very clear idea as to how it all has to have to be done mechanically. Can you explain that? Yes, it's good for your listeners to understand that there are really two basic things to do with the money. One thing, let's call the first category or bucket <laughs> programs. Programs to help Ukraine and other victims of Russia's aggression. These programs need to be urgent. They, in some cases, need to be conditional on certain policy steps. And they need, in, for Ukraine, to be linked to the process of EU accession and help address the costs of EU accession. So those that's a program category that's proactive. It's a pro, it's a effort to not only build Ukraine back, but build it back better. And then there's a second process, a second bucket we can call claims. So I'm a farmer and Russians have destroyed my farm or they've mined my fields or they've just, they've blown up my factory or I'm a company that Russia, whose assets Russia has taken. All those people have claims, and those claims need to be sorted out and paid as quickly as possible. But sometimes those processes can take years, sometimes many years. So you need to have a large amount of money set aside for the programs and a large amount of money set aside for the claims. You need to have both things. But you see, in a claims, a claims process is different from a programs process. A claims process is more reactive. It In a claims process, you don't really have policy conditions. In a claims process, you can't work the issue of EU accession conditions and all of that. And in a claims process, you tend to want to rebuild or compensate for the past instead of investing money in ways that may be best for the future development. All of this, by the way, though, programs and claims are part of compensating for Russia's aggression, compensating, in my view, mostly Ukraine, but also some money set aside for non-Ukrainians that have been victimized by Russia's aggression as well. Yes. So obviously, I think even obviously the register of damages that we have now, which will be a part of the larger compensation mechanism for Ukraine. It is modeled on Iraq Kuwait Commission, which was UN one, which is not available in this case because of Russia's veto in UN Security Council. So I think it's I think uh, as I as far as I remember, if I'm not mistaken, that it also compensated to foreigners and foreign companies who were affected by Kuwait uh, Iraq invasion in Kuwait Kuwait. That's right. In fact, compensation went to 10 other countries in that case, but about 80% of the money went to Kuwait and Kuwaitis. But about 20%, which was in that case about $10 billion, and that's $10 billion from 30 years ago. So it's a lot of money. Back then, that was a lot of money. It went to to non-Kuwaitis. 
including both Iran and Israel. And obviously, the uh, CBR funds are the most liquid assets that are available for the West to the Western countries. What do you think about other Russian assets, like maybe state-owned companies or oligarchs? Uh, what is your under international on? law and as an active state? Most of the money is in the state accounts, and the state accounts are the best ones for international law because you can say. The Russian state is responsible for its behavior, so anything owned by the Russian state can be used as a countermeasure. That's a very clean, straightforward argument. Now, if I say, you, uh, Vladimir, or you, Alexei, Alexei, you, you're a Russian, therefore your money, you know, you're an oligarch, therefore we want to treat your money, you're responsible for Putin, and we want to take your money too. Well, that's a harder argument because what Alexei will say is, I'm just a private citizen. I'm not responsible for Putin. It, you can't take, you shouldn't take my money just because Putin did bad things. So then if you can, if you can prove that Alexei, that this oligarch is really an instrument of the Russian state, well, then maybe you can take his money too. Basically saying he is a surrogate for the Russian state. But that require that does require probably for you to go to court. It requires you to prove certain things. It's complicated. So private people, private citizens, private companies do have rights. I know that the Russian government doesn't think that private companies have rights, but other countries actually abide by the law. And private individuals and private companies have rights. And so those legal issues are much more complicated. My proposals all have to do with assets of the Russian state, where I think the legal the, the legal issues and the mechanisms are very straightforward. And by the way, that's where all the money is. I mean, yes, maybe you can squeeze money out of selling a selling a yacht or this or that, but it it just turns out to almost be maybe not be all the trouble. It's not worth the trouble. But on the other hand, I think uh, the Ukrainian government has done a very good job of identifying Russian assets that are appropriate targets for countermeasures and that from a Ukrainian point of view, and I think that in many ways that seems fair because Ukraine is at war with Russia. So because Ukraine is at war with Russia, it, it can forfeit the property of Russian citizens right and left, just as the Russian government forfeits the property of Ukrainian citizens every day. Yes, I would like to add that, you know, when I'm thinking about assets of uh, oligarchs, so-called oligarchs, what we can see is that governments can start utilizing legal concepts that they had before, not necessarily related to the war of Russia against Ukraine. So in the U.S., it is criminal for facing in case of sanctions evasion, and it was utilized once already. Russian oligarch Malafeyev tried to move his funds in the United States in violation of the freezing order. These funds were confiscated. And then the next level, which is which was a new legislative development in the U.S., that these funds, instead of going to U.S. Treasury, are um, sent through U.S. aid. 
to Ukraine. But the underlying legal concept for confiscation was just standard criminal violation. And I think in the UK, they can start utilizing unexplained wealth orders. They haven't started doing that yet, but I think this is a path which the United Kingdom can take. Since, especially politically, there have been a lot of discussion that UK really needs to clean up London Rod. So I think unexplained wealth orders are something that we will see more and more of. But I have um, quite high hopes for Russian state-owned corporations as Gazprom and Rosneft. And I'll explain why. So firstly, I think every, it's easy to prove that these companies are not independent business entities, but mere instrumentality of states. And from practical standpoint, I think there is uh, there, there are assets to go after because after the UK's decision, investment arbitration decision, Russia was pursuing the strategy of uh, protecting its assets abroad, uh, which were originally uh, just straight state-owned assets, were transferred to these state corporations to somehow in, protect them from enforcement measures. So I think since the UK's decision, uh, more and more of uh, valuable state assets have been transferred to Rosneft, Gazprom and other large corporations. So obviously it will come at later stage. It will require more paperwork and some additional substantiation. But I think at least these uh, major, major Russian state-owned corporations are also good target for these uh, measures. So I thank you for finding time for us and for sharing your incredible knowledge and insight and just for being a champion of the of this issue and advocating it. And thank you for joining KSC Talk. It's a little thing we outsiders can do from the United States of America to help the, the people who are on the front lines um, in Ukraine, some of them soldiers, but many of them the women and children who stand behind the soldiers. So what little we can do to help, we should try to do. Thank you so much. Take care. To our listeners, thank you for your time and engagement. I hope that today's discussion has offered you fresh perspectives. If you found this episode informative and wish to continue exploring such issues with us, please sign up so you don't miss any of the content. For updates, do follow us on Twitter at KSC Institute. We have an exciting lineup of guests and topics for you. Thank you once again for joining us on KSC Talks and until next time.